ESPN Head in the Game. Yes, hello, welcome. This is Head in the Game, your ultimate take on the week's major sporting event. Now, I'm Jamie Lang, and this week, let me give you a few clues to our destination. Now, it's named after the inventor of the single-seater fighter plane. Yes, it's red all over and dominated by a chap we like to call Rafa. I'm not talking about Rafa Benitez. No, of course, I'm talking about Nadal. That's right. It's the French Open, otherwise known as Roland Garros. Joining me to preview the big event is a woman who's no stranger to a dusty red surface. She's the former runner who could have been Commonwealth Youth Champion in 2008 if Casta Semenya didn't have all that extra testosterone. It's Rachel Stringer. I love that I could have been. Oh, could have been. It now takes me back to India, 2008, silver medal. Why are you talking like that? Hello, I was like, Silver. Back to yesteryear. What do you mean? Why would you talk about yesteryear like the one you just came? I felt like it was like in a dream. Okay, Jamie. You're not in a dream. Yes, but I was reliving yeah, a memory. I, okay, I'm going to relive my morning. Here we go. Had eggs this morning. Bit of bacon. It was delicious. Had drank some water. Ah, uh, I walked down the street. That's how I relived it. In my defence, this was 2008. Eleven years ago. 2008. I was at school. I hung out, played a bit of rugby. It was great. That's me remembering it. Definitely weren't at school. Yeah, I was at school. You're older than me. Well, by a year, if that. Anyway. Whatever. Roland Garros, can't wait. Okay, so before we meet our guests, let's hear from our very own voice, who will attempt to give us the ultimate guide to this week's big event in under 60 seconds. Now, voice, are you ready? Hello, Jamie. How are you? God, I've missed you. Yes, I'm ready. Here we go, the French Open in 60 seconds. The French Open goes way back to 1891, originating as the International Championship of Tennis. Although, ironically, it wasn't very international at all and was only open to French players. The rest of the world had to wait another 34 years to compete. In 1928, the tournament moved to a new stadium named after French aviator Roland Garros, and the competition is now widely known by that name. The playing surface is naturally made of clay, but limestone and a powdering of red brick dust. In 1956, Althea Gibson made history becoming the first African-American to win a Grand Slam. In 1968, the tournament became the first Grand Slam of the Open Era, with Ken Rosewell the first men's and Nancy Roshi the first women's champions. American Michael Chang is the youngest man ever to win a Grand Slam men's singles title, winning the French in 1989 at just 17, while Monica Selic was the youngest to win a women's title at 16 and a half. The French Open became the last of the four Grand Slam tournaments to make the move for equal pay for men and women in prize money. It's the 123rd year of the tournament. The reigning champion of the men's singles is the so-called King of Clay Rafa Nadal, who's won a record 11 titles. The most ever won at a Grand Slam tournament in the open era. Simona Halep is the women's champion. Uh, Thank you very much, Voice, with his quickfire lowdown on Roland Garros. We'll hear more from him later in the quiz. Uh, Now, in the studio, uh, there is a gentleman who knows a lot more about tennis than I do. Probably not as good at forehand, because my forehand is impeccable. It's Simon Cambers. How are you, Simon? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? How good is your forehand? Not bad. Ask me how quick my serve is. How fast is your serve? 149 miles an hour. (laughs) Oh, dear, this is what uh, you get. He's so competitive. We're getting in the record books. (laughs) Regardless of what you said, he would always yeah. beat you, okay? He's got a high barrier. It's good, high bar. Uh, Simon, tell you're a writer. You write about tennis. Can you tell me about the French Open? Where does it lie in the sort of major tennis tournaments? Well, if you think Wimbledon is the sort of pinnacle of tennis, then Roland Garros is right behind it. There are four Grand Slams. It's one of the other three, US Open, Australian Open. But the French Open has all the history. It's brutal. It's on clay. You've got to play five sets. You're going to be there for hours and hours and hours. But it's very tactical and it's brilliant. And always the best player comes out 
out on top. There are no flukes at Royal Garros. This is an event you've covered a few years now? I have. I've been covering it since 2004. I've seen a lot of things happen, mostly Rafael Nadal win, because it happened 11 times so far, <laughs> and maybe 12 this year, but it's a great tournament to go to. Southwest of Paris, lovely tournament, finishes about 9, 10 o'clock at night. You just stroll into Paris, have something to eat, on your way home. That sounds lovely. There's <laughs> a bit of work involved. <laughs> Out of the four majors, which one is your favourite? It's my favourite to cover, because it's more social. US Open and Australian Open, we're working well into the night. Wimbledon is not as late, about 11 o'clock, but there's nothing open in Wimbledon after that except for a curry house and some <laughs> chips. So France has a, a little bit up on that. Rachel loves a curry and chips. Me too. Me Actually, too. I got back from events last Monday and I had 11.30pm curry, veggie curry. Oh, on my own. That's right, then. Took a selfie, sent it to my friend. She didn't believe me. I was like, well, you know, no photo, no proof. Look, Rachel's train, you always find her. She goes to an opening of an envelope, <laughs> don't you? That's what you do. Uh, Simon, I want to know, why uh, Why is it such like a brutal tennis tournament? I understand that it's the surface, it's slower. Why does that make it harder? Surely that would make it easier if it's slower. Well, it gives the players more time to get round the ball, to chase the balls down, but the rallies are just much, much longer. And generally, the matches themselves last a lot longer. It's so exhausting for players to play 30, 40 shots at a time. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a lot. And if you're going to do that over five sets, the matches go four or five hours. There's everything involved in it. It's not just a big serve and a smashed forehand. It is drop shots, angles, touch, technique, tactics. And so there's a lot of uh, mental pressure as well as physical. They do say that this is the hardest of any of the four Grand Slams to win because of the surface, because of what's involved in winning. And I just mentioned to you, how does it rank in your favourite majors? How does it rank in the players' favourites? Well, it depends really what kind of players they are. I mean, some of the players who prefer the faster surfaces, the ones who have the more aggressive game in general, would probably prefer Wimbledon. US Open is arguably the fastest of the lot. Australia has become quite quick recently. From a purist point of view, a lot of players love it because they really get into the tactics and the difficulty of winning. It's a, it's a real grind, but it's also a mental battle, and players love that. Would you say then it's a bit of a maverick in the tennis calendar? A little bit, and it sort of fits in with being in Paris. It's French, isn't it? The French love a character. They love their home players there. There's always some great things happening on court. They've got some really great characters. Gail Monfils, who set the place alight late mm -hmm. at night. It's a great place to be in late May, early June. Simon, just bear with us. We have another guest on the line, all the way from the US of A. He's a legend of tennis journalism. It's Peter Bodo. Hi, Peter. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm doing well. We should, we should have a little more sunshine, but I guess that's uh, par for the course. In the We've spring. got it all. Sorry about that. We've taken it all. Where are you actually calling from? New York City. New York. Ah, uh, New York. Brooklyn. Williams. No, no <laughs> Brooklyn for me. I'm old school. Oh, so Upper East Side. No, no, no. Are you kidding me? I'm going to do one more time. Upper West Side. No, Upper West Side. New Jersey. It's a different state, isn't it? I've got it totally wrong. That's a different state and a different state in many ways. Uh, Peter, so we were just chatting a little bit with Simon about Roland Garros. Of course, it's starting this weekend. We just want to ask you where it ranked on your favorites in the Grand Slams. Well, you know, as a fan, it's wonderful. The matches are awful long. I can't say it's my favorite because the red clay, I find, a little bit monotone being there. I'm being terribly aesthetic here, I guess. But the grounds are somewhat cramped. It is kind of fun to watch the matches. The weather can be very changeable there. You know, it could be very chilly there. And to sit there in, on a chilly day, you know, watching two WTA ladies bat the ball back and forth for three hours, that can be a little bit challenging. So on the other hand, when you get a glorious sunny day on Chartrier or on Langland Court, you know, it's Langland Court, by the way, that and the Bullring are two of the most beautifully realized stadia you'd ever see. So, I mean, in that sense, 
it's wonderful for the spectators. The outside court's not so much. It's a little bit better than it used to be in the bad old days when, you know, guys would just grind it out from the baseline. And there is a certain appeal to that, I think. I like attacking tennis, so I think uh, Paris isn't really the most favorable format for that kind of game. The big story this year is whether Rafa Nadal can make history becoming the first player to win the same Grand Slam 12 times. I mean, incredible. No player, man or woman, has ever done that. He's been so dominant for so long, and now to see him struggling a little bit, and it's mostly because with Nadal, you've got to listen to what he says, I think. He's pretty honest in press, and he is telling us that he hasn't played enough over a couple of years. He hasn't played three, four weeks at a time because of injuries. He's somebody who really loves to play a lot, feel like he's playing at his best. It depends a little bit what happens uh, in the few days leading up to Paris. If he's feeling good, then things start to change. He's still the man to beat, but he's more vulnerable than he was because he hasn't won those tournaments that he normally wins in the build-up. He usually mops up all the clay court titles on the way to Paris. This time, he didn't win his favourite tournaments in Monte Carlo and Barcelona, and Madrid, he got beaten too. So, There'll be a little bit of doubt in there, and that gives other people real chance. And there are some big names around, of course. The confidence is not quite there. Somehow you look, he's got that furrowed brow, and you can see there's a little bit of a twitch there, not quite the same sure-handedness we've seen in the past. He is still the man to beat. He is desperate to win it again. This is his main goal for the year. It's going to take an incredible performance from someone or an injury to Nadal to stop him. He's still the one. Why is he so good? Is it because he is just so fit and strong and powerful, or is it more a mixture of mentality as well? What do you think? Well, you know, like a lot of these things, it's the perfect storm. Like any great tragedy, like any great accomplishment, there's usually a number of things come together to create these favorable conditions for something to happen. And I think in this case, it's true. There's this combination of remarkable stamina, remarkable determination. The guy has got this kind of OCD focus that is unreal and the type of game he has, you know, the right hand or playing left-handed with that really crazy spins, which really are enhanced on clay and work so effectively against a right-handed player. The tradition of clay court tennis that he's got in the background. And so, you, you know, it all adds up and essentially almost like the perfect machine that's been created. And I think it's easy to overlook the importance of the eccentricity of his game. You know, in, in a strange way, that actually is a compliment to Novak Djokovic's ability to play well with the guy on clay because N- Nadal is really kind of a unique one-off individual, like a clay court version in the way McEnroe was on fast courts. You're not going to see somebody playing like Nadal, like you don't see anybody playing like McEnroe. These are once-in-a-generation, one-off, sui generis, you know, champions and geniuses. It's interesting as well because you've got Novak Djokovic, who uh, is number one seed and world number one, but Rafa's the champion and favourite with the bookies, as we said earlier. Do you think it's right that he's the favourite? Yeah, based on history, based on the fact that even on the times he has played this year, Nadal still played well because he got to the final of the Australian Open. Yes, he lost to Djokovic, but he was in the semis in America. He had to pull out there. He's not played badly, and he's getting better on clay, so he knows that what he can do, and he is still the man to beat. But Djokovic, of course, is going for four slams in a row in Paris. He did that it. He's is already, crazy. He's already done it once. He did it in 2016. He finished it off in Paris. This time, he's back on top in terms of his game. The thing about Djokovic is he, he is absolutely now totally set on trying to chase down Federer and Nadal in the overall Grand Slam titles. Federer has 20, Nadal has 17. 
Djokovic is 15 and he is chasing him. And so he is not really that worried about what happens in between. Yes, a couple of titles here and there would be great, but this is what he wants to win. He wants to win the French Open. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he goes. And can I ask you guys, because you know this far better than me, we have this generation of tennis players, Nadal, Djokovic, Federer. Has there been another era where we've had this sort of generation of tennis players battling it out for all these major tournaments? Well, I was going to say Pete's probably the better to answer because uh, Pete goes... (laughs) No, no, not not just because you're older, Pete, but you've seen all these guys playing down the years. Hey, yeah, that's very rude, Simon. I apologize, Peter. (laughs) Sorry, Peter. (laughs) I'll answer if you like. (laughs) Peter, what do you think? Uh, Do you think this is a a once-in-a-lifetime sort of generation of players coming together? Yeah, I think the numbers speak for themselves. I mean, you had some pretty good ones before. You had the Agassi Sampras generation. That was right up there. You had the Laver Rosewall generation. You don't have the contrast that you had with McEnroe Borg at so many different levels. Everything from European continental to the American kid, you have their whole approach to life, the whole way they looked, everything. Not to mention the important kind of stuff like the style of play, their preferred surfaces, things like that. So, no, I, I think that's the gold standard, and it's hard to imagine anything surpassing that the same way it's hard to imagine someone surpassing Chris and Martina on the women's side. We've spoken about Nadal, Djokovic, all these players, and obviously Federer we've mentioned, but, uh, you know, he holds the most majors. Uh, and he has just one French title to his name, which he won in 2009. I know, Peter, you're going to be astounded by my knowledge of tennis. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> is he the greatest of all time, Federer? Yeah, I think so, because of a combination of things. When they're all finished, we'll see who comes out on top. But the way he plays, the style he's played... The man he's sort of become on and off the court. So I think he is the greatest player. He's, he can do anything. I was just going to ask one more question, kind of going back to Rafa. Um, do you think we'll ever see anybody, female or male, being as good as we've seen him on clay at the French Open? Simple answer, no. Never say never. Well, there could be a Rafa who's another inch taller, you know, and a little stronger. But, you know, but no, it's it's very unlikely. Like I say, perfect storm. I mean, I think, again, that unique game of his, you know, it's it's very hard to imagine somebody coming up with something equally unique, but unique in a different way. Of course, it's possible. Anything is possible. But, you know, uh, I doubt it. I mean, he obviously has his um, coaching set up in Mallorca. Could he not produce somebody himself that could rival his achievements on clay? Maybe when he has some kids, they'll do it. Or Federer's Federer's kids (laughs) will get in there first. Maybe Federer will send his kid to that camp. And then Federer's kid will be developed by Nadal into like the greatest (laughs) all-court everything ever player. I'd love to see that. Or if Nadal has kids, maybe they'll fall in love with Federer's kids and it'll be even better. We've now gone on to a love story of tennis. I thought you were about to say if Federer and Nadal had kids, then it would be the ultimate. (laughs) Who, in your opinion, Pete, do you think could potentially be in the final, could be up there, could be winning it? Tsitsipas is somebody to watch because he's got a different kind of a game. I'm still trying to figure out his game. I still don't know how I feel about his game. Sometimes it looks really lightweight, like he doesn't have enough oomph in today's game. At other times, it looks like he's just, you know, so quick and so facile around the court and with such a great all-court game, violating and everything else that, you know, that, that this guy could really do some damage and come through and beat everybody and end up being like the next Andy Murray or not Andy Murray style, but next big four type player. Some of them are struggling. He's very, very struggling, but I wouldn't write him off. This He's a very, very confident self-assured guy. He kind of laughed off his slump recently. He laughed off his loss 
to, to keep us, which has got to be burning them because, you know, it's it's almost like the next gen, the battle between these next gen stars. And it's like to keep us is trying to steal us thunder. But, you know, he laughed it off and said every week is going to get better. He feels so I don't know. I wouldn't write him off either. If Nadal doesn't win, you might even see a surprise champion because Djokovic has lost some matches. Federer is always, you know, dicey on clay these days at 37 years of age. You may see somebody like a Monfils finally come through. He's played some great tennis. It's funny you say Monfils because I think the uh, Patrick Moratoglu, Serena Williams coach, he said if it's not Nadal and Djokovic, it'll be Monfils, which was a, some statement from him. But I mean, I would say Dominic Team, the Austrian, is the sort of form choice outside of the big guns. I mean, he he's already won Barcelona. He's been in, he was in the final last year twice in the semis at Roland Garros before so I think he's the one coming he did lose in Madrid to in a match he might have won against Federer with that great match I'm looking forward to seeing Federer in Paris because he is adored in Paris if you think he's adored at Wimbledon in London Paris they absolutely love him he's adored everywhere let's just say that they have the R-fed tops the red and the white wherever you go don't they and his fans are just so loyal there's no question of that I mean him and Nadal are the two that have been loved universally but he it does make a difference I mean it really does I know even team who is uh, going out with Kiki Mladenovic for example who's French he has a little bit of an advantage because they love her they love him as a result but Federer yeah he, he just feeds off it and he is somebody who is really great to talk to and you you know really interesting when you speak to him but he also has a, a bit of a swagger he has the ego and he loves being adored you know who does but he I, don't, sort of... I don't like attention. <laughs> hey, well, if, if you're Roger Federer, you're going to have to get used to it. Andy Murray was never particularly adored. And Novak Djokovic... I take, you know, take issue with Murray, maybe. Not, well, I mean, when you walk Eventually. around Wimbledon, and again, you try and like grab people to give you a little bit of opinion on the match or, you know, some voxes of colour or whatever. It's harder to track those people down, whereas Nadal and Federer are so distinctive. Why didn't Murray, okay, to an extent at Wimbledon, but Djokovic not have that? Well, I would say with Murray, and Peter could probably tell you more about this, Murray's very popular around the world, in Australia and America especially, and in France. In Britain, you know, it has the, the people moaned about about how the fact he was moaning, he never looked like he was happy on court, he always looked like he was having a bad time. Please, can't you smile? And he's like, why should I smile? I'm trying my hardest here, this is ridiculous. Um, but he's become, he's been, he's loved now, and, you know, he's, uh, as well as being a, a great, great player, he's won three Grand Slams, Davis Cup, and two Olympic gold medals. He's also become a sort of champion for good issues, good morals in this country. So he's, he's pretty well loved, I think. But with Djokovic, it's more interesting and more nuanced. It's hard to put your finger exactly on why he's not loved as much as Federer and Nadal. I would say that he doesn't like not being as loved as much. He does feel to me like someone who would love to be loved. Don't get me started on Andy Murray. I'm, I'm a little bit down on Andy Murray. This, uh, you know, the drama queen aspect of, of the whole thing with the hip was a little bit too much for me. Retiring and unretiring and tears and no tears, grumpy head down, whiny, complainy guy with the DIY kind of a game. I think he's realized it works for him, you know, and so he's kind of made a good reputation with that. He's, and he's won a lot of hearts. People really do like him. He's, he's very popular. And look, I mean, when you do what he did for British tennis, and I think his achievement, winning Wimbledon in his position, given what British tennis has been, that is such an unbelievably great accomplishment. It, it's right up there with individual single accomplishments. We've spoken a lot about the males. Let's speak a little bit about the female side of the draw at Wimbledon. Obviously got reigning champion Simona Halep there. Um, she obviously defeated Sloane Stephens last time out. Can she do it again? Well, yeah, she's number one in the world, or she's about to be number one in the world again. She is, I think, the best player on clay. You know, full stop. Her and Sloane Stephens probably are the two most natural players on clay. She's coming into form nicely. She's had a little bit of an injury. 
um, but she's probably the one to beat. The thing about the women's event this year at Roland Garros is that it's wide open, but it's wide open amongst very, very good players. We, you know, the women's tour gets a lot of criticism from various sections for being, you know, anyone can win this. And, and it's used as a derogatory term. It's not like that these days. There are now, I would say, 10, 12 players who can win this, and they've all won Grand Slam titles already. So you're looking at a classy field who on any given day can beat each other. But the number one player on clay is Simona Halep. But but also, you know, talking of people, you look at Serena Williams. Now, uh, as a champion, as an athlete, she is probably the best there's ever been. There's talks of her being off her game a little bit since she's become a mum. Do you think tennis is as important to her now, or is she more focused on being a mother? What do you think, Pete? It's not a matter of being more focused on being a mother. I think she's more focused on her regular life, and I think that's definitely the case. I, I kind of get the feeling that she's talking more of a good game about tennis than she's actually feeling. I mean, she's saying how much she really would love to be playing. You know, she pulled out of her own sighting this left knee injury, the same injury that she cited in Miami. And I get the feeling that with her activities, you know, she was at the Met Gala recently, obviously, made a big splash there. And, then, you know, I almost have a feeling that, you know, why not just drop into tennis once in a while and hope that you can pull it together and win a Grand Slam? I mean, I think certainly it, that's what counts for her now is a Grand Slam, because there's something really at stake here, which is that record. Well, what was this um, article I read this morning about Serena Williams eating grass to stay fit? The uh, headline reads, Williams has dominated on grass, now she's eating it to stay fit. What on earth is that about? I think you've been eating some grass, if you know what I mean, Rachel. <laughs> but come on, like, I mean, where does that come from, boys? Do you, do you know much about this story? I know nothing about the grass story. I mean, I know that she supposedly has gone vegan with like her sister, Venus Williams. But uh, yeah, that sounds totally ridiculous to me. But all these things, you know, they all think about it now. They're, they're all encouraged to think about it by their teams and their coaches and stuff. But I guess that's the younger players, like Naomi Osaka, 21 years of age. What are her chances, maybe, at Roland Garris? She is the number one in the world. She's competing now with uh, Simona Hallett for that title. But she's won the last two Grand Slams, so she is at the top of her game. Um, many people think she's going to go on to win sort of double digits Grand Slam. She is that good. Clay, she's still getting used to. I think she would be the first to admit that she, she's not at home on the surface. And there might be some players who can take advantage of that. And she can still, she's still very young in, in Grand Slam terms. She's only played a handful of them. And yet she's won two, which shows, shows her mentality. It might depend a little bit on the conditions. If it's the drench open like we had a couple of years ago, she wouldn't really enjoy that because that was pretty rough. There were, you know, 14 days in a row of horrible sort of slow rain, light rain, which makes the conditions very heavy. And for, even though she has the power, other clay quarters might get the better of her. I think if it's a dry one, uh, if it's warm, then she has a better chance. But also you've got uh, Kiki Burtons, who's another up-and-coming prospect. Is there a chance for that? Yeah, I think there's a very good chance. She's probably the most, one of the most overlooked players in the field. Although I'm not sure she's overlooked anymore by people who've been following events. But yeah, she won last week beating three Grand Slam champions without losing a set in Madrid. But again, remember, Madrid's a little bit faster. She's a big girl. She's six foot tall. She hits, plays a big game, plays with a lot of power. So she could do it. Does she have the mental uh, and emotional resources in addition to the physical ones to go two weeks, best of three, get out of some tough situations, tough jams, deal with different conditions. I spoke to Kiki Bertens in Madrid last week and uh, she's great to speak to. She's a really nice woman and she's coming into her own, it feels like. And she's now starting to believe that she can win one of these things for the first time. Until now, she's much preferred to be under the radar. When we get to Paris, it'll still be the case that others get more of the attention than her and that's the way she likes it. But what I really like about her, apart 
apart from her game, which is perfectly suited to Clay, she's been in the semis at Roland Garros. She is the one outside of the Grand Slam champions who is the next in line to win one, if it happens. But she, her relationship with her coach, Ramon Slauter, who is a former player who played two hands both sides, really wacky sort of player, is great. I mean, at the Grand Slams, the coach can't come onto court to talk to the players, but in the regular tour they can, and he comes on court. Generally, he lets her speak first. And uh, in Madrid, in her first round match, he started talking and she said, oh, your breath smells. Come back when you fixed it in Dutch. <laughs> and uh, he came back later on and then they had a proper <laughs> chat and then you go from there. So she's got a real character. He is great. He's made her believe a lot more than she ever did before. They don't hide their thoughts from each other. They're just blatantly honest. He'll talk to the press. He'll tell them her faults, her strengths, her weaknesses. Um, and she's happy with that because she would be happy to hear it from him too. So she has a great game for, for Clay and she could go well. OK, then if I could ask you guys, who is your favourite to win it? Simon, I'm going to ask you first. I actually think that if it all comes together for her, Petra Kvitova could win on Clay. She'd also be favourite for Wimbledon come Wimbledon, the way she's been playing, but she could win this. Pete, what about you? Petra has such a way of blowing it when she's uh, you know, an inch away from it uh, that just hard to go with it. I'm going to go with Sloane Stevens. She's starting to come around a little bit, so yeah, let's let's roll the dice and go with Sloane Stevens. As far as the GB men are concerned, Carl Edmund, who um, actually I had a knock around with, and he said you're pretty good at this, and I said that's well, a lie. It's a when was this? Go on. I did. I played tennis with him once. Ages get get ago. the picture out. I didn't, there's no picture. There's no proof. Didn't take one. Didn't take one. Did he get your 149 mile an hour serve back? <laughs> Couldn't even hit it. Pete, you probably don't know this. I can serve 149 miles an hour, but that's another story. Uh, Carl Edmund is seeded 21st in Paris. Now he had an amazing 2018, rising to 14th in the world. He slipped back a bit since then. How do you rate his progress in the world game? Can he break into the top 10, Pete? Do you think? I think it's going to be tough for him because a lot of guys, they have a great year, you know, a great stretch, and people figure them out, basically. And Kyle Edmund, I think, is kind of a pretty one-dimensional player. I think he's a pretty easy read for the other guys, and I think uh, anybody who's faced him before has come away with a sense of what they have to do differently next time. I think it's going to be a struggle for him. He's got a lot of power that's always going to help him if he actually can play with extraordinary precision and focus and confidence. He's certainly got the power to to establish himself there, but I'm not a big believer in his game myself. So you guys both think that it takes that little bit of extra magic in order to make it into the top ten, in order to win those major championships. You need that little bit of, let's use the French, je ne sais quoi, to make that happen. Unless you've got a massive weapon like uh, a John Isner, who has the serve you know, out of the trees, that will probably get you into the top ten if the rest of your game is half decent. Generally, you need a bit more to it. I think Pete's right about uh, Kyle Edmund. But when I look at someone like Andy Murray, you know, his current situation, I want to discuss that with you guys. What is it? Is he going to play at Wimbledon? Is he not? He wasn't that magical with his movement, I don't think. What was it about him that had, took the edge then? Well, I, you know, I think it's very deceptive by his movement. He doesn't look like he moves well, but he's a lot better move than he looks, in, in my opinion. I think his vision of the game, his... His sense of the court, I think, has always been superb. He's got a great idea of what to do. He's, he's kind of a great offensive counterpuncher. His game, I think, is very subtle and very interesting, very textured. Efficiencies aren't really quite as visible to the naked eye as they are of, say, a Federer. You know, you get that beautiful, flowing, you know, as people say, full-flight Federer. Or if you look at Nadal, you know, that brutal, punishing, workmanlike power. You know, Murray's gifts were, were much more subtle, but I think he moved tremendously. I think, and one of the keys to his movement, I think, it was his uh, timing and anticipation. I mean, I think he had a great sense for reading what the opponent is he has a great sense for reading what the opponent's going to do with the ball and getting there and doing it. His whole game has a do-it-yourself look, in fact. It's always one thing I've always liked about him. It looks like 
You cobbled it together, and, and it works. And movement is a very, very strong asset. Now, have you heard anything about his current situation? Is he going to play at Wimbledon or anything like that? I would never second-guess Andy Murray because I've, I've been wrong too many times. But he, I know that he hit a couple of times last week with Dan Evans, but I think still only from a standing position, uh, stationary tennis. I would be surprised if he played singles. I don't think it's going to be possible this time. But you never know with, with Murray. He'll, he'll improve quickly from this point on. If anyone's going to make it back, it'll be him, just from his work ethic and sheer desire. He wants, to, he's not done. He wants to carry on. So if it's at all possible, he'll do it. Okay, I want to ask you one quick question. Who do you think is going to win the men's and who do you think is going to win the women's? It's hard because I never like picking winners. I always, I always say, you know, I generally say, you know, I, I'm there to watch, see who does win, not to say who's going to win. If I'm put down to the wall, I guess I'll, I'll have to go, I guess, with Stevens, like I said before. On the men's side, I'm liking Djokovic. I think Djokovic is getting stronger. I'm not liking the way Nadal's been playing. The pressure of being as good as he's been and, and of all these titles, I think all that ultimately will start to wear on him when he's not really on top of his game. But would I be surprised if he ends up winning it without losing a set? Not at all. I completely understand what you're saying about Djokovic. I think it, a lot of it depends on the draw. If Nadal can avoid Sitsipas and can avoid team in his half of the draw, get a bit lucky, then I will stick with Nadal. And on the women's side, I think I'm going to go with Kvitova. At Wimbledon, there'll be an awful lot of pressure on her because it's her surface. She's won twice. But I think the French Open, she'll still go under the radar a little bit. If she gets through the first couple of rounds where she's always dodgy, then she'll take some beating. You're staying with us to do the quiz, but this is goodbye for now, Pete. Thank you so much. See you guys. See you later. See you soon, Pete. Bye. Right, everyone. Uh, here we go. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. It's Voice and his quiz, obviously. Yeah! Voice, are you ready? Hello, boys and girls. How are you? <laughs> I'm so excited. And who's this fellow? This is Simon. Oh, hello, Simon. Hello. Are you ready for a quiz? You're the expert, of course, aren't you? Yeah, no pressure. Pressure is on. Voice, get on with it. Yes, it's the head in the game quiz. Jamie, Simon and Rachel, are you ready? So ready. Ready for this. Not okay, sure. question one. Multiple choice to Jamie. French aviator Roland Garros, for whom the tournament is named, is also known for A. Being in the first air battle in world history B. The first successful crossing of the Mediterranean in a plane in 1913 C. Having an airport and Peugeot car named after him D. All of the above I'm going to get all of the above Is correct oh! <laughs> Simon Rafa Nadal is the king of clay with 11 men's titles but which queen of the court has won the most women's championships at Roland Garros. A. Martina Navratilova. B. Steffi Graf. C. Chris Evert. D. Serena Williams. Hmm. This is more difficult than I'd hoped. <laughs> That's why we gave you the question. <laughs> well, I know Chris Evert won six, but I think Steffi Graf won more. Unfortunately, you're wrong. No. It's yes! Chris Evert. Yes! You should have gone with your first throw. But what? Yes. <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> Rachel, question three. Oh, gosh. At 16 years and six months, Monica Selesch became the youngest female Grand Slam winner in the Open era when she won the French Open in 1990. But who beat her record? A, Serena Williams. B, Martina Hingis. C, Maria Sharapova. D, Anna Ivanovich. I could have had this one. <laughs> Tough. Do you want it B. again? Hingis. Is correct. Oh. By the way, Lottie Dodd won Wimbledon <laughs> age 15 in 1867, but we think Rachel could have won that one. <laughs> yeah, hell Back yeah. to Jamie. What is the name of the trophy won by the men's singles champion at the French Open? A, the Charles de Gaulle Palm. B, the Musketeers Cup. 
C. The René Lacoste Trophy. D. The Coupe de France. The Coupe de France. No, it's the, the Musketeers' Cup. No. I was going to say it's probably that, and I bet you have something like a Musketeers' Cup. Why would I have a Musketeer Cup at home? <laughs> I know, for that fastest serve, the 149 miles an hour one. You can argue amongst yourselves. Okay, round two, true or false? Simon, true or false? The first French Open was won by a Brit. False. It's true, my friend. <laughs> You're not doing very well. What year? what year are we talking? Can we check this? Can we check it this? It was won by H. Briggs in H. 1891. Briggs. That H. wasn't H. open, was it? Even though it was oh. only open to homegrown players, he was a resident of France no and allowed to take way. part. Oh. Take that with you this ruling. year. I will. I'm going to write Roll this out down. your commentary. Rachel. <laughs> yes. With 11 French Opens, Rafa Nadal has won the most singles titles at any individual Grand Slam. True or false? True. It's false, I'm afraid. Oh, I meant a- Margaret Court also won 11 Australian Grand Slam singles. OK, Jamie, the French Open isn't really played on clay. True or false? That's false. It's true. What? Come on. These days, it's a combination of limestone, gravel and crushed brick. Which, if you put me. together, makes clay. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, here we go. Time to exonerate yourself. Can I get one right? Michael Chang won the 1989 championship aged just 17, defeating Ivan Lendl after serving underarm. True or false? That's a bit of a trick question. Go on. Because he beat Ivan Lendl in the fourth round, serving underarm, and he did win the French Open aged 17. But he beat Stefan Edberg in the final. True or false? (laughs) Well, false. No, Simon, you've got everything right. It was true. It's a very badly worded question. You need to go back and have a look at that. I'm going to give you that one because everything you said was absolutely correct. Thank you very much. Well I interviewed done. Michael Chang recently. By the way. Okay, final round. Yes, go on. Oh, I'm exhausted. Sort of. French champion or French cheese? Oh, I love these ones. In 1962, French President Charles de Gaulle said, How can you govern a country which has 246 varieties of cheese? So this is why we've got this category. Rachel, Vacheron, French champion or French cheese? Champion. Is correct. Four-time French Open champion, 1894 to 1901. Jamie, Livero. Ah, lovely with a little bit of peach chutney. It's a cheese. (laughs) (laughs) It's correct. It's a Normandy (laughs) cheese. Have you got it in your fridge? All the time. (laughs) Oh, dear, Simon. Oh, it's bad. (laughs) Simon's going to get it wrong. There are no French champions. can't wait. Valencé. Yes. Champ- can I have it spelled for you? <laughs> no. And in a no, let's give him a, okay. give him a chance. Please, I need let's some help. <laughs> it's v- <laughs> V-A-L-E-N-C-A-Y. Valencé. Any accents on it? Cheese. Is correct! Yay! Uh, as a supplementary, uh, cow or goat? <laughs> <laughs> I'll go uh, goat's cheese. Yes, it's two points (laughs) for Simon. (laughs) Fighting back. This could be the ultimate tiebreaker. I'm going to give you all a chance to answer this. The winner is the one who answers it correctly first. Cochet. Cheese. Oh, Oh. cheese. (laughs) Rachel says cheese. The question is, he's a player. Yeah, he's a player. I knew that as well. Henri Cochet. Henri Cochet. He I'm going to oh. give it to Simon because there's no way you knew Jesus he was I can tell you what part of France he's from, but you can't Ooh. say that, Simon. And that was the Head in the Game quiz. <laughs> Boys, thank you very much. <sighs> 
Oh, I had a lovely time. Hey, uh, Peter Bodo, one of my favourite people, Simon Cambers. Simon, I feel like me and you should go and hang out and play a little bit of tennis and I'll show you what a real forehand looks like. I think maybe you should go and learn some more multiple choice questions on tennis. <laughs> uh, I think you're right, I need some homework. Uh, Simon, you didn't respond to my uh, date request. Would you like to go and play a game of tennis? I, I don't think I can get your serve back, so no. You've just rejected me? Right, well... Pff- Fine, I don't care. <laughs> Go and well, play with your mate from Leon. Oh, that's about all we got time for this week. Uh, if you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe for free and review. Join us next week for another special when we preview the ultimate sporting week. Two all English European finals, the championship playoff final, and Anthony Joshua is back in the ring. Can't wait. Uh, right, everyone, are you ready, Simon? Here we go. Until then, keep your head, head in the, the game. game. ESPN, head in the game.